Please now hear God's word. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who are standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, or and I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua... On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's now go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we now come to approach your word here in Zechariah, We do pray for uh, the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, we pray that we might be able to see and understand what is in this passage. And we pray that you would uh, use it to further transform us. And Lord, to build us up in our faith and godliness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If someone approached you on the street and asked you to tell them what the biggest problem in the world is, how would you respond? How would you respond to what man's greatest issue is? If you look at any recent surveys online, you'll see that uh, there's issues such as uh, the issue of climate, uh, issue of poverty, issue of hunger, uh, starvation, lack of drinking water. And the list goes on and on. And yet, the Christian would respond and say that the greatest problem facing humanity, what the scriptures say is our greatest problem is not any of those things, although they're important, but rather it is man's sinfulness before a holy God. And in Zechariah chapter 3, that issue is, is put front and center. It's put front and center. Because as we've seen previously... Uh, The people need encouragement as they come back into the land. But one of the major issues that needs to be addressed, if they're going to have any hope, any comfort at all, is how a holy God is going to dwell with his sinful people. So Zechariah chapter 3 teaches us of God's provision for his sinful people. We can divide this uh, chapter into three different sections. First, we've got verses 1 to 3 which addresses the issue of sinfulness. Uh, Verses 4 through 7 gives the solution. And then finally, verses 8 through 10 gives us a picture of the coming Savior. 
So let's look at each of these. First, uh, sinfulness. Uh, As we've seen previously, Zechariah is uh, prophesying during the post-exilic period. God's people have come back into the land. Haggai, he's primarily concerned with rebuilding of the temple of God, whereas Zechariah is concerned with the rebuilding of the people of God. And he began his book by calling his people uh, to repentance. And one of the things that would have needed to take place as soon as the people got back into the land is they would have needed to reinstitute the sacrifices. They would have needed to reinstitute the priesthood. And the book of Leviticus is, is very detailed in its description of uh, what the priests are to do, uh, how they are to be ceremonially clean, uh, all these different minute details. And what, what happens with the priest is there is a high priest, the one who is going to go into the, the Holy of Holies every, every once a year. And the high priest is going to represent the people of God. And so what we have here, what Zechariah sees, is a vision of the high priest Joshua who represents the people of God. And he's, he's called a brand who has been plucked from the fire. Now, for most of us, when we hear the word brand, we might think of a, of a metal brand. But the, the particular word that's used here is for a, a wooden stick. You know, most of us, if we've ever gone camping and we're going to build a fire, we chop up our wood, we put it in a pile, we start a fire, and eventually what you're going to want to do is, is get a poking stick so that you can move the logs around to stir up the coals. And you want one that's, that's long enough so that you don't have to put your hand too close to the fire, but also uh, thick enough so that it doesn't break off in the heat. And Joshua, and by extension the people, are referred to as a brand plucked from the fire, meaning it was in the fires of, of Babylon. It was in the fires of, of the exilic period that the, the people faced uh, destruction. And yet they have been rescued. They have been pulled out and saved. And they have been brought back. But there's a glaring issue. There's a glaring issue. And if you look with me in the text, in verse 3, it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And many of us have, have read this text before. We've heard sermons on it. And so you know that when you read the word filthy, it's not just that uh, Joshua has just a little bit of dirt on his garments. No, it's, it's much worse. But rather, it's, it's the word for excrement, that Joshua is, is covered with excrement. He is absolutely uh, filthy. And for the ancient readers, this would have been absolutely horrifying to hear because they know that the high priest, he needs to be ceremonially clean. They know that everything has to be in order. They know that if the the high priest doesn't do his job just right, he could die. He could be laid bare before the wrath of God. And I think the the only possible illustration that might even come close to to the horror that is experienced by the original readers is if we compare this situation to a wedding. And here's what I mean. All of us know that weddings are very, very important days. For most people, they're the most, perhaps one of the most important days of their entire life. And they, a bride and groom, they're going to wear the, the finest clothing that perhaps they'll wear for their entire life. 
And we, we know that, yes, it's, it's very important for, uh, to have the focus on, on the couple as a whole, both on the bride and groom. But we know that really the bride with her dress is kind of the, the centerpiece. That everybody, when, when she walks down the aisle and the music plays, everybody's eyes go upon her. Now, the situation here would be like the music plays. The bride begins to walk down the aisle and her beautiful white wedding dress is covered in this kind of filth. There would have been an audible gasp before everyone that the high priest who ought to be clean, he is filthy. But what makes matters worse is that the the filthiness here that is, is covering Joshua, it is representative of not just his sin, but the people's sin as a whole. That the entire people are defiled by their sin. And so the, the logical conclusion would be that if, if this is the state of the people, there is going to be wrath, there is going to be judgment, there can be no hope or comfort. Which brings us to our second point, which is the solution. The, the unthinkable happens here. That the, the angel of the Lord, and as we've seen in previous sermons, is representative of, of the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord calls for Joshua's garments to be removed, to be taken off, and that he would be clothed with pure garments. This is as unthinkable as uh, the parable of the prodigal son. As you remember, in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke, this son says that, in effect, he wants all of his inheritance right now. He wishes that his father were dead so that he could have all of his money right now. And he takes all the money and he runs off in wild living. He spends it all. He's living among the pigs. And then he he comes to his senses and, and decides that he's going to travel back home. And in that parable, it is it's unthinkable because the father, what does he do? He sees the son coming. He gets up and he runs to embrace his son. His son that likely reeks of filth. And yet he extends to him all the blessings and full privileges of a son. Clothe him with the finest garments. Put a ring on his fingers. And what we see here is that God is making full provision for his people, that he's clothing his people with righteousness. It says that a, a, a turban is put on his head. So we have Joshua, literally from head to toe, he has been clothed. By grace, he has received garments. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so here in Zechariah chapter 3, we see uh, veiled in this Old Testament language what is going to be uh, known later on in the New Testament, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, of of the crediting of the righteousness of Christ to sinful people. And how, how do we receive it? By believing and trusting Christ. Martin Luther has a brief quote that I would like to read. He says, So then we have nothing to obtain. We, we have nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? No, nothing at all. 
For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Now God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness sin has no place, so that we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair. Because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine, and in my own righteousness. But I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. This is an astounding Astounding doctrine that God would clothe his people with the righteousness of Christ and that we would be saved by faith alone in him. And in addition to the doctrine of justification, there's one commentator who points out we also see the doctrine of sanctification. He says in verse 7, thus says the Lord, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, Then you shall rule my house and have charge in my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So now that Joshua has been clothed by grace alone, that he has received these beautiful garments, he is now called to a life of obedience. He's called to a life of of sanctification. And he's promised various privileges, such as access to the temple of God, where the presence of God would be. Access to the ability to go before the Lord in in prayer, to go into the very throne room of God. And this is a promise that, as we know, is extended to believers. That is, the author of the Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, it's interesting that the the New Testament also teaches that although believers have the the right and the ability to come before God in prayer, uh, as as we learn from the New Testament, uh, believers' prayers can be hindered when there is sin. And so there's privileges, but we are called to holiness. And with that comes great privileges. Third and finally, let's look at the Savior. Now, in verse 8, we are told that the servant, the branch, is going to come. And this term, the branch, is one that is, uh, throughout the Old Testament, applied to the coming Messiah. It is applied to the one who is going to redeem the people of God, who is going to bring about great spiritual victory. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So it is the branch who is going to bring about victory for God's people. It is the branch who is going to bring about the solution to the people's problem with sin and defilement. And it is the branch who is Jesus Christ. 
Now, while there's been a lot of speculation about the identity of the stone in verse 9, it it appears that the stone is uh, representative of the temple building project. Uh, The temple, as it was going to be rebuilt, was going to be made up of a lot of stones. And the seven eyes, uh, very often in apocalyptic language and literature, uh, seven is the number for completion. If you recall from our study of Revelation, when it speaks of the the seven spirits that are before the throne of God. Uh, It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits, but rather the Spirit in its fullness. And the seven eyes, eyes are often symbolic for the, the knowledge, the omniscience of God. This would have been great encouragement for the people to know that they had God's sovereign, watchful eye upon all of their works and labors. And it is going to be inscribed upon this stone that God is going to deal with the iniquity of his people in a single day. That he is going to remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This also is is simply astounding that the the problem that has stretched all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 that has plagued mankind that is... is, is going to be removed in a single day, that, that seems too good to be true. That God would have the final solution to put away our sin forever. And yet, as Paul says in Colossians, that, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so as we look back, we can see clearly that it is the the cross where all the iniquity of the land will be put away. That as Isaiah says, the iniquity of all his people was was laid upon the suffering servant. And it's at the the cross of Christ where the, the question of how God, with His unbending justice, can be merciful to a sinful people, it is answered at the cross. And with this historic moment, with the cross of Christ, with the resurrection of Christ, with the life, work, and resurrection of Christ, it has now ushered in a reign, a new stage, a new era of spiritual prosperity. It's spoken of here in Old Testament agricultural terms. That the the Lord of hosts, in that day, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There will be spiritual provision for the people of God to its fullness. So that everyone will have what they need. This is the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ back in the book of Zechariah. Now, as I conclude, just wanted to uh, share a brief story. Uh, when I lived in uh, Tennessee, one of the things that uh, I would often do when speaking with people and trying to do personal evangelism uh, is, is ask them a very specific question. And this, this is a good question in areas where uh, everybody is kind of familiar with uh, the Bible, a little bit familiar with, with the uh, things of God, maybe even they know the name of Jesus, but they don't understand the gospel. I would often ask people, is, is God happy with you? 
And I would normally get one of two responses. Either they would kind of drop their eyes a little bit and say, not right now. Or they would say, I think he is. And if you follow up with, and why is that? You find out quite a bit about people's theology. If, if someone says, not right now, then the idea is that what I need to do is I need to get my act together so that God will be happy with me, so that God will love me. But until I do that, not going to happen. The other one, if somebody says, I think so, and you follow up and ask, why is that? They might say, well, I've, I've been a pretty good person. But both of those reveal the uh, extremely shaky foundation of their eternal hope. That either it, it depends upon me to get my act together or, or maybe uh, I, just, I just need to be a, a good enough person. But as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And the wonderful thing that you can tell people is you don't have to get your act together. You don't have to wonder whether or not God is happy and pleased with you. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Him, if you have surrendered your life to Him, God is very happy with you. He is pleased with you. Now, of course, we know as believers we can fall under God's fatherly displeasure. But that is entirely different than the the wrath that lies upon those outside of Christ. And so as, as the hymn says, let us love and sing and wonder. It says, he has hushed, that is Christ. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, that he has fulfilled all the law's demands, that he has hushed the law's loud thunder. And Lord, that by grace alone, you have given your right, his righteousness to your people. And we thank you so much. We praise you for the work that the branch has accomplished. We thank you and we praise you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.